0: Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every other Thursday, we release these special episodes that we call Classic Risk Singles, favorite stories of ours from the archives. Well now this week, we are celebrating the life of one of the most beloved figures in the New York City storytelling community. I'm devastated. To let everyone know that Mike Cho, who has been on the podcast twice and was a regular figure in our audience at other shows, Mike passed away. It was cancer and it was very sudden and it was just devastating to so many of us here in New York. For years, Mike would come to shows with his camera and uh, take pictures in the back, but he, he struggled with social anxiety. So he really you know, hung back for a long time. And then when he finally did share a story on Risk, it was in the episode called Dicey, we're gonna run it in just a bit. That story was all about those struggles with social anxiety. I can't tell you how giddy we were on staff that night to see Mike get up and shine like that after having seen him in the audience all those years. And then the second one he shared uh, was called Marathon Man. And I was just so honored because I felt like Mike really dug into really intimate and complex material there about relationships and self-esteem. I remember after a show one night saying to other faculty members, you know, if we can afford to hire more teachers in the future, Mike seems like he might be a great addition because after shows, he would always say the funniest or most interesting things about a story, the observations he would make about various stories on the shows. I would think, Oh my God, I, I guess a part of me was kind of thinking something like that, but I didn't know how to put it into words. So, it really is just yet another thing this year that is, is just difficult to process. So the only way I can think to really do him some justice here is to feature the two stories that Mike did share on Risk. The first one is called The Thing You Think Is Supposed to Happen that was on the show in February of 2019. And the second is called Marathon Man from November of that same year. Without further ado, here is Mike Cho.
1: Oh, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I will tell you something that some of my close friends don't even know about me. And that is that uh, through my whole life, I've struggled with often crippling social anxiety and social awkwardness. It comes and goes, but even on the best days, like I can always just feel it there right under the surface. And sometimes I can just hear somebody laughing or talking even in the next room or down the block and I'll just suddenly be convinced that they're laughing at me and they're whispering and pointing and staring at me. So because of this, like I hate going to parties because I'm terrible at them and that makes me feel terrible. And so I hate parties. This has been with me long enough that I've picked up all the little tricks that you learn to get you through life or at least get you through the day. You can practice smiling and saying hello in the mirror. You have this running list of conversation topics just constantly rolling in your head in case you run into somebody that you know and you have to talk about something. One trick that I picked up that I like is to always carry a camera around with me. And this helps for a lot of reasons. First, obviously, the lens and the screens and the viewfinder and all that, they create this safety barrier between you and the the rest of this world. I also like it because when people see you with a camera, and not just a camera phone, but an actual camera with like buttons and dials and all that on it, that automatically gives you a reason to be somewhere. You know, like you're the photo guy, you're there to take pictures. Otherwise, you're just a guy standing by himself in the middle of a crowded room, just waiting for that thing you think is supposed to happen. So there are good days and there are bad days. And this day in February, three years ago, this was actually a good day anxiety-wise, even if it was pretty bad in all the other regards. Like I hadn't eaten since before noon. I hadn't been sleeping. I'd been having a rough week at work, my nine-to-six job, and I just worked a full day and had done a three-hour volunteer shift on top of that. So I was exhausted and I was starving, but even so, I was running across town from West 13th and 7th Avenue to Houston Avenue A and I was happy I was happy because the hard part of the day was over and I was going to meet my friend Mimian and we were going to see a show together. Mimian and I we were at Mercury Lounge we were there to see Mark Eitzel he's a singer-songwriter that had been a favorite of ours for many years Mark Eitzel sang for a band called American Music Club that I discovered when I was in college at that exact magic age where you first discover and really fall in love with music. And American Music Club, they sang these epic poems of longing and heartbreak and addiction, and they were just dripping with irony and pitch black humor. And that was my life in the 90s. And uh, Mark Eitzel, his solo stuff, it was brooding and intense and kind of terrifying. And the man himself is brooding and intense and kind of terrifying. And the room is crowded from our spot at the front of the stage. And it's super hot. Like they had cranked up the heat when they first arrived in the afternoon and just had just left it on all day. And Mark Eitzel, he begins playing this song that I really love called Patriot's Heart which has this great lyric in it that says, give me all your money and don't tell me what you're thinking. I'm the past you wasted. I'm the future you're obliterating because that is my life today. (laughs) And then more out of habit and just because I always have it with me more than anything else, I pick up my point-and-shoot camera and I begin taking pictures. And Mark Eitzel, he brings the song to a dead stop And he looks directly at me and he says, could you stop that? Could you put that down, please? And immediately I drop the camera, but it's too late. And I look around and I see all of these 200 ghost faces around the room just lit up by the different colored stage lights just slowly turning to face me. And the irony is not escaping me at this moment that here's this device that is supposed to protect me from people staring at me and now is the very cause of it. And Mark Geitzel, he's not being mean about it. He makes a joke. He says, oh, cameras just make me think too much about how I look, and then I can't play. So, of course, everyone in the audience starts shouting, you look great! And someone says, I like your necktie! To which he responds by ripping it off his neck and throwing it on the ground. (laughs) And then he says, all right, I, I don't feel like playing that song anymore. And then he starts flipping through his iPad for something else to sing. So now, not only have I been called out and scolded from stage by one of my heroes and completely shamed myself in front of this crowd, now that he is skipping the song, I've literally ruined the show. And this is when the panic attack starts. So if you've never had a panic attack, I promise you they do great things for your breathing and your stomach and your blood pressure. So my heart is exploding in my chest. And I can feel every fluid in my body just rushing up through my throat and choking me. And my toes start tingling and they go numb. And my fingers start tingling and they go numb. And I start getting this incredible buzzing lightheadedness. It's like the kind of lightheadedness where you can actually feel yourself leaving your body. And it's something that has happened to me all too many times. It's not every day, but it only happens on the worst days. And it's happened uh, often enough that I know that the only way to get through it is to just close my eyes and slow down and write it out. So I close my eyes and I slow down and I write it out. And I wake up and I'm on the floor and Mimian is frantically shaking my shoulder. Are you okay? Do you know where you are? Do you know what day of the week it is? And I look around and I see all of the 200 ghost faces are bearing down on me. And this time I know it's not an irrational delusion because not only have I passed out in the middle of this credit club and not only have I stopped the show again, (laughs) but on my way down, I had slammed the back of my head against the edge of this concrete step and I had split the back of my head open and there was blood everywhere. There's a woman behind Mimian who neither of us have ever met, and I can hear her calling for an ambulance. The bartender or a manager or somebody hands me a towel that I think is clean, (laughs) and I hold it to the back of my head. And then once he sees I'm okay, then he quickly escorts us out to the emergency side exit, which is great because I truly would not have survived being paraded down the middle of that room through all those faces. Except the emergency exit just leads to a hallway, that exit out's right next to the front door of the club, so now I'm sitting down on that little stool where the doorman usually sits to check IDs and hand stamps, and instead of having been paraded past all of the faces, all of the faces are now parading past me, out the front door, and this is made even worse because I know that that means that the rest of the show has been canceled, and maybe the whole rest of the night has been canceled. And maybe the health department's on the way to like burn the entire building to the ground. (laughs) The paramedics arrive and they check my vitals. and They ask me how much I've had to drink and Mimian jumps to my defense and says, he had one beer, which by the way, I didn't even finish and I didn't even really want. I just needed something to hold in my hand, which is another great trick, by the way. (laughs) So that is my first ever ambulance ride. And two and a half hours laying in the emergency room later, that is my first ever MRI, and then two hours after that, the doctor comes by and tells me that I did not have a seizure and I do not have a concussion, and all she has to do is patch me up and I'd be free to go. And all night I had been dreading getting stitches. but The doctor says that they don't use stitches on scalp injuries. First they would have to shave the injury area, which she finds upsets the patients more than the injury itself. (laughs) And also the skin on the scalp is too tough and too thick and too much work to like yank the needles through. So she says that instead of stitches, they use staples. (laughs) And out of her coat pocket, she pulls this white plastic Star Trek phaser looking thing. And she asks me if I'm ready. And she pushes it under the back of my head, and without even the indignity of the old 3-2-1 fakeout, she pulls the trigger and ka ka-junk, kajunk. I feel these two giant industrial carpet staples being driven into my skull. So it's after 4 a.m. by the time Mimi and I are outside the hospital. And Mimi has stayed with me the entire time, and I will forever be grateful to her for that. And she's sitting back there if you want to buy her a drink later. (laughs) Um, And Mimi, and she tells me not to be embarrassed that this kind of thing could have happened to anybody and who cares what other people think. And she jokes that next time we go to see a show, we absolutely have to eat before and not after. (laughs) And then she asks me if I happen to notice that while we were sitting by the door waiting for the ambulance that among the parade of faces passing by us out the door, that there was Mark Eitzel himself just walking out of the club disappearing onto the sidewalk. And I say, yes, I did notice. Just walk right past us. Like he had to have seen us. It would have been impossible for him not to have seen us. But, you know, there he was, just guitar case in hand, out the door, out onto the sidewalk. And It's late, and Mimian and I, we're exhausted, and we're still a little freaked out by the whole thing that has happened. But we just start laughing. We're laughing out there on the sidewalk in front of the hospital, and we're laughing, like, Dave Grohl would have (laughs) stopped. Eddie Vedder absolutely would have stopped. Lenny Kravitz would have sent the fucking muffin basket. It takes me the whole rest of the weekend to work up the nerve to take a shower and wash the rest of the dried blood out of my hair and to actually touch my fingers to the wound. And I actually take a picture of it on my phone just to see how bad it looks. And I'm surprised to see that what I thought were these two giant industrial carpet staples were actually just regular office staples. These two sharp, spiky things that felt so enormous in my skull and so insurmountable in my head, they were just regular tiny little office staples. And by the end of the week, I'm showing them off to anyone who wants to see them, surprisingly few. (laughs) And then when I go to have them taken out, I ask the nurse if I can keep them. And she looks at me like, okay, weirdo. Like, I'm the only one who's ever asked to keep the staples that have been stuck in their head for a week. And I still have them. I have them in a little Ziploc bag in a drawer at home. And I'm sure anyone coming across them, finding this bag with these two little bent staples, going to wonder, like, why the hell did you keep these? But when I look at them, I think, you know, sometimes the things in my head really are as big as I think they are, but at least that one time, at least that one February night, they really weren't. So just uh, one little funny PS to the story is there's a music journalist named Mac Randall who was at the show that night. And in his write-up of the show, he described the whole incident as the most unsettling sequence of events I've witnessed in 30 years of concert going. So, I've decided that if I ever get a book published or I'm in a show or any situation where I have to write a bio I get to officially say that I am responsible for the most unsettling sequence of events witnessed in 30 years of concert going thanks
0: this is real nice makes yeah. me want to do somersaults
1: Well, why don't you? I feel stupid. Harold, everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much.
0: (laughs) Don't be shy, just let your feelings roll on by. Don't
1: wear fear, or nobody will know you're there. Your head and let your feelings out instead. Don't be shy, just let your feelings roll on by, on by, on by, on by, on by, on by, on by by, by. Uh, Tim and I were a bad match from the start. Uh, Our entire relationship consisted of me uh, taking the M72 Crosstown bus to his apartment off Columbus Avenue where we would just sit on his couch and watch TV all day. Uh, We were obsessed with trading spaces and by we, I don't mean Tim and I, I mean the entire nation. Uh, We would order mediocre takeout, And then we'd go to bed, and the next day, I would take the M72 Crosstown bus back to my apartment on First Avenue, and that was it. That was our entire relationship. So uh, I was younger then, and I was naive about relationships, but after a while, even I was starting to ask, like, don't couples who date actually do things together? So I must have been making some noises about this, because uh, uh, one day... Tim surprises me and says that we're going to a dinner party at his friend Harry's house. And Harry's this uh, older gentleman who lives a few blocks up from Tim. Uh, He's about 10 years older than Tim, who is already about 10 years older than I am. And uh, we get to the party, and I'm very nervous about making a good first impression. This is the first time I'm meeting any of Tim's friends. So, of course, the very first thing I do is I spill a full glass of red wine while trying to cut a piece of hard cheese. (laughs) And immediately around me, all of these, like, thousand hands appear with all these napkins and towels, and they clean up the mess, and I hear somebody telling me that uh, Harry's been drinking for hours and he's probably not even gonna remember any of this in the morning. Uh, so seated around the table is another couple. They were the owners of the Thousand Hands that came out to clean up the mess. Uh, this other couple who, like Tim and I, consist of an older white guy and a younger Asian guy. And in the kitchen, there's another young Asian guy who is cooking dinner. And dinner is Koko which is a French dish, and that uh, briefly confuses uh, Harry and the other white guys around the table <laughs> because Cocavon is a French dish and the chef is Asian. Oh, but uh, you know, f- um, Vietnam was a French colony for many years, so that checks out. Oh, but the chef, uh, he's not Vietnamese, he's from the Philippines. Oh, but it's all the same general area, isn't it? All of those third world countries in Southeast Asia. Are the Philippines a third world country? Really? Electricity and running water, really? Uh, The last two guests arrive while we're eating uh, dinner. Uh, First there is Aaron, who uh, is another young Asian guy who happens to be Tim's uh, ex before he dated me. And yeah, I've stayed friends with exes in the past. I don't really think that's weird or a big deal. And the last guest is uh, one more young Asian guy who is this actor-comedian who is just stopping in in between shows. So for those of you keeping score at home, that's skinny young Asians, five, old white guys, three. So we finish eating dinner and Harry clears the table and he puts on some music and immediately the Asian guys at the table they just start screaming and they get up and they start dancing and it's just like so instantaneous but like looking back I totally get it you know this was the year of uh, Beyonce's first uh, solo album. And, you know, people were still rocking out to uh, Christina Aguilera's uh, Stripped CD. You know, that's the one that had Fighter and Dirty with the two R's. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sitting at, I'm still sitting at the table, just like watching them get up and dance. And like, I don't, I'm not joining them because like, I'm, I'm I'm not the dance gay, you know? (laughs)
0: Like,
1: I've tried. It's just, it's just not me. So I'm just still sitting at the dining table, which is like off to the side of the room, just watching this like impromptu dance floor popping up in this little open area in front of the, the entryway to the kitchen and just watching, you know, people like doing their, their spins and, and voguing and like taking turns doing like these runway walks and these crazy death drops. And... Um, I'm sitting there at the table watching this and I happen to look over and I notice that the three white guys have retired to a couch behind me on the other side of the room and they're sitting there and they're just watching the show. And Harry whispers something to Tim behind his hand and Tim laughs and whispers something back and they're just sitting there and watching the show. And it's at that moment that I realized that this party, this party is not a party for everybody here in this room. This party is for the three white guys back there on the couch. And all the rest of us, we're just the entertainment. So when your relationship exists in as much isolation as Tim's and mine's, it, you know, it just exists like completely out of context with the rest of the world. and. You don't really know how you fit into that other person's life, and you don't really know how, that, how the other person fits into yours. But sitting there, seeing Tim on the couch just watching the show, it's the first time I realized that I'm not even a human being. I'm just the next one on the list. So later that night at Tim's, I'm trying to explain to him in my limited emotional vocabulary, like everything that was wrong with the party, I'm um, trying to explain to him about uh, exoticism and orientalism and racial fetishism And and also about uh, objectification and disposability And I'm just not getting through to him And every word I say I'm just like digging myself deeper into this, this hole of, of whiny and needy And Tim, he just kind of rolls his eyes like he's heard it all before From, uh, from, uh, from people who are smarter and more eloquent than I am just rolling his eyes like, here we go again. But he finally gives one of those, I'm sorry if you were offended, that was not my intention, apologies. And uh, all of these isms that I've been describing, he says, that's not him, that's not who he is. And at the time, that was enough for me just to hear him say that, you know, because I was naive about relationships. But as naive as I was about relationships, I knew that relationships are supposed to be about common life goals and shared experiences. But sometimes relationships are also about this person is looking at me and nobody else is looking at me. And what if nobody ever looks at me again? So the weeks go by and summer turns to fall. And one night over mediocre takeout, I'm telling Tim about something that happened to me in fall of the previous year when I was still brand new to the city, that there was this one Sunday morning where I woke up to hear this huge crowd right outside my window, like so loud, they could have been inside the apartment itself. And I looked outside and I just see these throngs of people lining the streets like like for a parade and they all have these signs and these balloons and these plastic horns, and it takes me a couple minutes to realize that today's the day of the New York City Marathon, and that it's going to be passing directly under my window. And I spend most of the rest of the day just sitting at the window, watching this endless stream of runners passing underneath my window, and just watching all of these people just cheering for their friends, and their coworkers, and their families, and just for complete strangers. And it was such a rare moment of community and togetherness in a city that, to me, had felt so cold and indifferent up to that point. And I could only imagine what it would feel like to be surrounded by all of these cheers, like the city itself was rising up and saying, "You know, you can do this, I believe in you. You belong here." So I asked him, I tell him all of this, and I asked him, I asked him, "If I started right now And if I trained and practiced really hard, did he think that maybe one day I would be able to run the marathon? And I ask him that, and I so need him to answer, like, yes, of course you can do this. I will help you. I will cheer for you. I will be waiting for you at the finish line. You can do this. I believe in you. You belong here. But Tim, he just laughs out loud, and he says, you are by far the laziest person i have ever met in my life like you won't even get up off the couch how are you ever going to run a marathon well in 2010 i ran my first new york city marathon Uh, it took Thank you. Uh, it took a, a year of training and support of all my friends who, like, didn't even really understand what I was doing, but they encouraged me anyway. And you know, they were people that you know to to supported me, and they, they were cheering for me along the way. And like, I could, I saw them cheering for me, and like, even if I couldn't see them, I still felt like you know the city, like I had imagined that the spirit of the city was like lifting me up. And, you know, I was connecting with all of these strangers who were somehow able to connect with me, who were able to spot me out out of a crowd of, you know, the the one anonymous runner out of 55,000. Just like being able to connect with me in a way that, years ago, two people couldn't even connect when they were sitting on the same couch together. And I saw the same thing when I ran my second marathon in 2014, and and my third one in 2017. And the one person I never saw in any of this was Tim, who will, (laughs) Tim, who will never hear about any of this because he doesn't deserve to, because, because fuck that guy.